called Path of the Wind. But the entire thing has to do with forming the right kind of heart in Jesus. Search your heart, search your mind, search your very spirit, because we are going to renew our covenant with the King before this message is over. We're going to worship. His presence will fill the room. And much like Joshua, whose name Hoshea means salvation, stood before Israel and knew that only one family out of one tribe, out of one clan, had made themselves liable to destruction, the God of the universe who is loving and powerful and merciful, who is full of loving kindness, knows the corners of our hearts that we have left liable to destruction. He is not a fool, and he will not be mocked. He may not visit upon your head today what your deeds deserve because he is merciful. But do not mock his mercy and say it will never come. Because as surely as if a man steps out of a plane, gravity will act upon him. Our Lord God raises up the humble and crushes the proud. And what better way to state just how proud we are when we cling to something in our hearts that we know he will not abide by and pretend he doesn't see it. It cannot happen. Saints, turn with me to John 2. I prayed this morning and got you a message from the Newer Testament. We'll be in here 99% of the time. means you'll know where all the books are and you may have read them before. I'm very appreciative of the work that's being done with our missions board. Please don't just walk by it like it's a picture on the wall. It's not. One of the things that God begins to take note of in a man and woman's heart is what your eyes, what your attitudes, what the motives behind your thoughts are regarding other people. One of the reasons our church loves missions is because it has nothing to do with enriching your life except in a spiritual way. In fact, it requires sacrifice from you. That's why we do it and none other. If I knew a better way, I would do it. Pray for those people. Spend as much time seeking their welfare as you do your welfare. And you watch when you refresh others. God himself will refresh you. Oneida and Christy and Abel have worked hard to get you weekly, bi-monthly, as often as we can, updates. There is no harder group of people on the planet to corral than missionaries. That's why they're sent into foreign lands. They're warriors. They're not often communicators. They're very seldom pastors. Pray for them. Uphold their work. Move on your heart to see if there's anything in your life that you can donate that would go towards them. After, of course, you have let God move in your heart to make sure you're supporting this place that is feeding you every week. If you don't tithe, start. If you don't tithe what the Bible says to tithe, be obedient. That's all we should ever really have to say about that. Are you in John 2? In John 2, I want to read you starting in verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw miraculous signs he was doing. 
and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Do you know that every Jew in the world had to be at the Passover feast? That doesn't mean everyone made it there. But God commanded every Jew in the world to be at the Passover feast, and no small number of Gentile proselytes. And many believed upon his name. In Hebrew, the word name is Hashem, the name, Shem. They believed on his authority, his body of work, his reputation. And still, he did not entrust his destiny, his well-being, his future, his plans to them because he knew there was still something in them he could not abide by. It is not enough simply to know who Jesus is. He must know who you are and be allowed to sift you. Be allowed to go through the corners of your life removing that which doesn't belong. Brother Yoon said in his book, Heavenly Man, I'm sorry, in his book, Living Waters, the reason American Christianity is failing is it is trying to run a race that it did not begin at the starting line. The place for powerful Christianity, the starting line, is repentance and a careful searching of our lives. Instead, we have gathered around us teachers that tell us what Jesus can do for us and fail to mention what we should be doing for Jesus. These were not my words. They were his. I think he's earned the right to say that after having spent three quarters of his life in prison being beaten for his testimony of the gospel. And I think when he said it, it was not with a malicious heart. It was with a hope for repentance. Saints, we want more love. We want more power, more of him moving in our lives. The question is, what is in us that prevents it? Because I guarantee you, the problem is not on his end. Can we safely assume that? That if we are not seeing some of the things that the Word says we should see, the problem is not with God? If it's not with God, that leaves only us. I want to read to you something that moved my heart. You know, I found a book again after a long time by Art Cates called Reality, the Hope of Glory. I mention these books and I mention the authors for a reason. If something blessed me, if it moved my heart enough to include it in the messages we preach, it's because I think that it might move yours. Do you want the minimum? Or do you want all you can possibly absorb of Jesus? Are you looking for simply a seat that is salvation? Or are you looking for a lifestyle that is revolutionary, that is powerful and takes the world by storm? Are you content just to be blessed, you, Johnny, Susie, you four, no more? Or can you not rest until the fire that is shut up in your bones has been shared with the entire world? Saints, there are prayer meetings springing up. It's a funny thing. A prayer meeting is a great litmus test for where you are in Jesus. When somebody says, come on, let's go pray for three hours, and you think, three hours, are you kidding me? What is in your heart? Imagine that you were newly married and somebody said, hey, Come on now, it'd be just you and your wife. The honeymoon suite, three hours. Would you go, three hours? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is a litmus test for where we're at. We prayed for an hour before the service. Are there as many people praying in here this morning as there was the first time we called for it? 
a most sense. This is not about works. It is about a passionate love affair, and everything in your life wars against it. If you don't believe it wars against it, look at our teenagers. Look at them. They're in love with Jesus, and they're in love with MTV, and they're in love with Jesus, and they're in love with anything that passes through their life. And you know what they're exactly like? They're parents. All of us have this in us. It is through a constant training, a constant carving and circumcising of our hearts that allows us to become more like Him. And it is serious, serious work. One which the church doesn't like very much. We tend to cover and hide and sit and soak. We pretend it's not there and just say, Lord, take me out of this place. Art Kate's book, He Saw a Lamb Die. He is a Jew from New Jersey. Messianic. He had never been on a farm. He had never been around livestock. He said he had never seen meat that was not in cellophane ever in his life. He was quite shocked to be on a farm and see how this worked. He said they hung a lamb by its feet from a tree. And as somebody cut its throat, he said he couldn't believe how much blood came out of it. And the noises sound like a baby crying. Abel's nodding because his own family has noticed when they kill lambs what it sounds like. And nobody wants to be around it. So what a revealing moment. A little girl in the crowd at this meeting cried out, It's not fair! You are right, it's not fair. You know what would have been fair? is if you died and not him. That's what would have been fair. How do we let something like that become cliché? How do we let something like that just become one of billions upon billions of facts in the wrinkles in your mind? It cannot. Knock the dust off of it, saints. He said it wasn't the lamb that got him, though. They brought in a pig. I want to read his words because I can't begin to do them justice. God had me lined up for the next experience, the killing of the pig. I didn't understand what a pig was until I had to feed those ugly, stinking animals. If I ever thought of the virtues of being kosher, I thought of them then. What a loathsome, squealing animal. You have never seen a more greedy kind of thing. When you bring them food, they don't even let you get to the trough. They swamp you, and if you should somehow slip on the manure and go down, you're a dead duck. When you finally arrive at the trough and pour that stuff in, They are already standing in it with all four feet, jumping and nipping at each other and knocking each other over. They're pigs. I thought to myself as I stood there, this must be the most absolutely economical way in which God in His genius has packaged protein. In the pre-refrigeration age, He gave the maximum amount of brain, nerve, and sinew to this animal. I'm sorry, the minimum amount of brain, nerve, and sinew to this animal in order to package the maximum amount of protein. Yet as a minimal as the apparatus of intelligence in the pig is, the principle of survival is among the most tenacious. It took four men to get that animal down, and each able-bodied man was hanging on to the legs as that stubborn thing jerked and writhed. It wasn't like the lamb at all. This animal was definitely not going to lay down its life. Somebody had his foot on its neck, and that fat thing was still squirming and jerking and squealing. At that point, one of the brothers looked at me and handed me the knife and said, Art, 
Would you like to? There was a sudden and intense repulsion in my soul that took me quite by surprise. This shrinking back sprang from a strange kind of identification with that animal. Down on its face, squealing and writhing and fighting for its life, the perception was clear and frightening. I saw far too much of Art Cates in that animal. I passed the knife to a brother who was experienced with this sort of thing. He knew exactly where to put it. Later, when we had the animal taken apart, all the entrails removed, he took out the heart and showed it to me. The knife had gone right into it, slitting deeply, and yet the animal did not die immediately. It squealed and made a ruckus and writhed and contorted until practically the last drop of blood was out of its body. I never saw anything die so hard as that stubborn, filthy pig squealing right to the end. I had an unsettling thought. My goodness, that's us. Decorous, quiet, well-behaved Christians sitting nicely in our pews, giving to missionary endeavors, attending Bible studies and all sorts of lovely church functions. But deep inside, there is a squealing pig, writhing, full of life, stubborn, with God standing with His foot on its neck. It's still not willing to give up the ghost. Saints, I want to lay before you the idea today that Jesus has deposited himself in us. And this is an advantage in every way. He has begun his process of sanctification. Sanctification requires something of you. You know that the word tells you to look upon your life with sober judgment. Would you think you would have to tell somebody, don't look at your own life like you were a drunk man? When somebody's drunk and you say, hey, man, I... Can I drive? What do they say? No, I'm fine. When somebody's drunk and you say, hey man, have you had too much to drink? No. Why do you say that? Drunk men do not look at their lives accurately. And the Word of God commands spirit-filled Christians to stop acting like drunk men, sober themselves up, and look at your lives. It's funny, the holiest Christians I know, the ones that I think when they pray, the heavens respond, are the most honest about the weaknesses in their lives. The ones that talk a good game are the least introspective of anyone that I know. Never able to admit when they're wrong. Never able to fall on their face and say, I repent and I'm sorry. I said this to you two weeks ago, church, and I'm telling you again. If in the last few months, dear God, if in the last few years, certainly in the last decade, if you have not fallen on your face in front of the people you love and said, I am sorry, you are missing out on the best part of life and there is still way too much squealer in you for God to do much with. If in your mind your thoughts are defending you at this very moment, if things like, who is he, are coming to your mind. I want to identify that voice for you. It is the squealer. Because the Holy Ghost would never say such things. He would never glorify you over his word. He didn't even glorify himself. So since we can identify that Jesus was not a liar when he said he knew what was in all men, I think it is very, very important how to figure out 
that we should become more than what we stand here today as. You say, come on, Eric. Man, this is every message with you. And it probably always will be. If you don't like it, we're wasting each other's time. Go somewhere else. I love you. I want this church packed. I want it full. I want it so full that we have to knock down more walls and do more building. But I don't want it at the cost of filling pews with pigs. I'm interested in saints because the king is interested in saints. There are pews full of pigs everywhere. How dare you call those people pigs? Their actions call them pigs. What do your actions call you? There's still way too much squealer in Eric Stevens. I pretty much weekly preach upon my weaknesses for your benefit. Give you a chance to see where the Holy Ghost is sticking the knife in my life. I don't do that as a gimmick. I set myself out there as an example, the good, the bad, and the ugly for your benefit. Some of you are focused. I see lots of bad and ugly. Well, good. Good. That's what you're supposed to see. But God has not begun to be through with me yet. Do you know that Joshua went to war against five Canaanite kings? He refused to put their leaders to death. He held them up in a cave. He waited till every man, woman, and child in Israel arrived on the scene. Because Joshua was like Jesus, and it was not enough for him to defeat the foe. He let the leaders of all of the tribes come and put their foot on the neck of the enemy. And he said, what we have just done to these five kings, God will do to every enemy you face. There is no area of your life that cannot be conquered with application of the Word empowered by the Spirit. There is only the opposition that comes from within you. The battle that happens in your own mind and heart. That is the squealer. We blame it on the devil. We say, the devil did this, the devil did that. Safely alleviating ourselves of the burden to have to do something. God has a plan for all men. When we begin to read John 3, we can look at the way in which God dealt with Nicodemus and we can see what His Word would do with you. Jesus is the living Word. Nicodemus is not unlike every other human being because he was one. You'll be able to see in his life attributes of yours. By the way, I told you it would be a New Testament message, so let me quote for you Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10 says, Love the Lord your God and circumcise your hearts. What a graphic, bloody horrible image that is. Now probably not one of you has ever watched a circumcision. And it might even make you a little squeamish to think about that, right? But in this culture, there would be no one who had not seen a circumcision. Because on the eighth day of every man's life in the community, they had watched a horribly sensitive area of his body get cut. Cutting away flesh. So when the God of the universe says, all of you, from Michelle right on to Ashley to Amanda to Brad to John, every one of you must circumcise their hearts. You need to understand something. It means in that sensitive part that you would like no one else to see, the part that would hurt the most, His Word will cut you. It will cut you in order to remove something that leaves you with a sign on your life that says, I am in covenant with God. 
But without this cutting, there can be no sign that says you're in covenant with God. You look like the world. Israel was to be distinct among the nations. Those of us grafted into their promises are also to be distinct. Not distinct in the outward cutting of flesh, but in an inward cutting that shows up in outward ways. So much of the church has simply decided we're good. That there is no cutting left. People have referred to this as gospel light. I don't know what to refer to it as. It seems like no gospel at all. That is not a commentary on any ministry. Most of the ones that come to your mind when I say that, I would be humbled to be in those men of God's presence. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the people. It's not the people who are hungering for more gospel. Or the pastors would give it to them. You find the right kind of spirit-filled, on-fire, fanatical saints, and they would no more put up with a self-help motivational speech than a man on the moon. They would take a janitor from among them and raise him up to teach them the word. Read with me John 3.1. I was not nearly so motivated about this until God spoke to me in the worship service. If you couldn't tell it that Asa's prayer, that is anointed by God. It's funny, people don't write books called Asa's Prayer. There are no placards on anyone's wall of anywhere that I'm aware of that say Asa's Prayer. They don't have Asa's Prayer for women. Asa's Prayer for adults. Asa's Prayer for children. Asa's Prayer for preteens. They do have Jabez's Prayer. I wonder what the difference between them is. That's right. One of them talks about blessing me and the other talks about being less reliant upon self. You tell me, is the problem with the pastors or the people? You're right. The answer is both. But they'd be out of a job in a moment if the people wanted the truth. They'd be out of a job immediately if the people wanted the truth. So easy to pick somebody and say, it's it's his fault. Really? What about the 10,000 people that sit and listen every week? Some have mentioned Jeremiah Wright in our political season. I think the man is not good. That's a whole lot less disturbing than the thousands of people that have been sitting in his church for years upon years upon years who hate Jews. Hate Jews. You think I'm more disturbed about one crazy old man or the 10,000 people that attend his church every day? Who do you think Jesus would focus on? But he's leading them astray. You're right. They don't have Bibles. Why is it that we always alleviate ourselves of every responsibility and always blame someone else? That's right. It goes back to the garden. Transferal of blame. Passed from Adam right on down to the woman, right on down to the snake, and the snake had nobody else to blame it on. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So funny, after 2,000 years of history, what was meant to be a compliment has become something that's derogatory. When I say the word Pharisee, immediately the imagery that comes to mind is negative. When I say Pharisee, you think, ah, a hypocrite. This is not what the word meant to the audience. Not at all. Not even close. You look it up in Webster's Dictionary today, and it mentions the word hypocrite. Because 2,000 years of anti-Semitism in the Christian church 
has created that. Because again, it is so easy to blame someone in the word rather than take personal responsibility. A Pharisee in the first century, A.D., its roots went back to the second century, B.C.E. Things are said about the Pharisees of a positive light in the word to the extent that in Matthew 23, 2, Jesus actually says, do everything they tell you to. They sit in Moses' seat. Well, that's never quoted, is it? Do everything they tell you to. He said, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. But I want you to hear something. They were saying the right things. Well, what kind of things were they known for? Their opponents gave them the name Pharisee. Tell us it's just a word, Pharisee. It was a derogatory term. It started as far back as the second century B.C. And you know what they said? Those are the separated ones. How do you get a name like separated ones? Well, Matthew's not here, so I'll brag on him today. When Matthew got born again, although we went to a Christian school and every one of us had made a profession in Christ. Matthew really got saved. And the first thing that he did was say, I don't think I can hang around y'all anymore. Especially you, Eric. Would Jesus say such a hurtful thing? You better believe he would. Because the word of God is a cutting tool. It began to circumcise my heart. I loved Matthew and I began to look and say, what is different? I began to persecute him and punish him for his stance. I said things like he thinks he's better than us. All the same things that the squealer might say in you when you're cut. But why was he separated? Because the Lord said, come apart and be holy. Well, an entire group of Jews tried to come apart from their fellow Israelites. They separated from them over things like, you're going to love this one, the very first one. They said, we don't want to be in the same room with people that don't love God enough to tithe. It's the first doctrine that the Pharisees became known for. They said all of the Israelites here are all participating in the temple services. They are all going to the three annual feast, and they are not all tithing. You know what was great about them saying this? They received not one penny of tithe. Not one. It all went to people who became known as Sadducees. But they said if you don't love God enough to honor him with your money, we don't want anything to do with you. You will corrupt us. And of course they expanded their boundaries and expanded them, and expanded them, and to some extent expanded them to ridiculous means. But I want to tell you something. Isn't there something pure, something noble in the idea of wanting to be separated for God? Well, when we read about Nicodemus, you need to understand, he belonged to a sect that tried to separate themselves from what they saw as worldly. Next, about Pharisees. Josephus says that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes were the three major religious sects in Israel during the time of Jesus. And among all of them, heads or tails above, were the Pharisees. He said the Sadducees were largely aristocrats, and the Essenes were separatists, not in the sense that they wanted to come apart and be holy, but kind of like we view the Amish. You know? Completely off the reservation somewhere, refusing to interact with mankind. Hillel, who Jesus quoted regularly, was a Pharisee. 
Gamaliel, who taught Paul, who counseled against persecuting the apostles, a Pharisee. Paul died a Pharisee. 20 years, 30 years after his conversion, in the present tense, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. He never stopped being a Pharisee. So if you're going to equate it with hypocrite, you need to call Paul a hypocrite. If that's offensive to you, then you need to change the way you think about the word. Acts 15.5 says that there was a group of believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Guess what? That was ten years after the resurrection. And they were still Pharisees. Because among all the things that Pharisees were known for, they were waiting for a resurrection from the dead. And they believed that the study of the Torah above all else was man's best service of worship to God. The temple was good, but Torah was better. The teachers were good, but Torah was better. Everything that you do is good, but the Torah was better. When you think about Nicodemus and it says he is a Pharisee, you need to understand this is his heritage. Usually when we read about him and we read the interactions between him and Jesus, we look as if we're going to downplay Nicodemus. Like, what an idiot. How could you ask a question like that? And on and on and on. Because as we devalue him... It alleviates us from having to look too deeply. What you need to begin to do is roll back the 2,000 years of history and begin to think about something. You would have esteemed Nicodemus. You would have wanted to be like him. You would have held him up for your children to imitate. Because of all the pious Jews, the Pharisees were the most pious. And of all the Pharisees to be named a member of the Jewish ruling council meant that you were one of the 70 finest Israelites in all of Israel. 72. So that's no small thing. I would equate it to the United States Congress, but we have such a low opinion of them that it's really not worthwhile. I'd equate it to the Knesset in Israel, except that really there is no equivalent here. These were the most revered men of their time. He didn't have a birthright that put him here. He had a love for God that put him in this party. To be a member of the Jewish ruling council, he had to go through Bet Sefer. That means from six to ten years old, he memorized the five books of the Bible. House of the Book, Bet Sefer. When he graduated at age ten, he went to Bet Talmud, the house of learning. This would have taken place during those impressionable years, 10 to 14. While our generation would be playing Xbox, learning how to lie to their parents and hide worldly desires within the carnal church, he was memorizing all 39 books of the Older Testament along with most of the oral traditions. The biggest thing that he was doing at that time was learning the art of questions. It was not enough to spit back a thought to someone that answered their question. Real learning took place when you learned to ask the right questions. I understand that, and let's go one further. What about this? He would have graduated from that and gone to Bet Midrash. He would have taken a rabbi to be his mentor in the house of understanding. And from 14 to 30 years old... He would have dedicated himself to learning everything that his nation knew about God. Does this sound like a moral deviant to you? 
There is not a pastor anywhere that I am aware of. Nowhere. Not any of the authors that I read. Nobody who would have had the time and study that this man had. And I want you to look at the way that Jesus talks to him. Not because he's bad. Not because he's a Jew. I hate that it's written, written, I hate that it is read with that slant. Ah, well, he was a Pharisee. Nothing belies the church's ignorance more than a statement like that. Watch this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees coming on the heels of the statement, Jesus knew what was in all men. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Given what I've just told you, what you need to be able to do is say, in all men is the squealer, right? We got that in this hand? Bob, we got that in this hand? The squealer. Now, on the other hand, we have a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. If there were any two statements that should be juxtaposed to one another, it would be the fact that in all men there was something unclean. And now, look, the best of all men is in the other hand. Let's see how the Word of God treats him. Do you understand what I'm doing? Actually, what the Word does. This is not, God knows what's in all men. Now let's look at one of those dirty, hypocrite Jewish leaders. Roman Catholicism gave you that. You need to cast it off. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Who knows? We. Who is we? We don't know. We don't know. But we is definitely more than one, isn't it? How interesting. He shows up at the end of the book with a man named Joseph from Arimathea, also a member of the Jewish ruling council. If you ever had the idea that all of the Jewish leadership was against Jesus, you don't have to read to the second and third chapter of John and you find out that is not right. But if you don't want to see it, it's hard to see. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with it. Pastor, we love your sermons. Good. Pastor, we've attended your church 20 years. Good. That's all great. You're a good person. Proud of you. In reply... Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Born again has become one of the statements that for sure from the 70s forward has been the evangelical choice of terms. Are you a born again believer, right? Lutherans never use such terms. And I love some of the things that Luther did. Other things were incredibly sinful. Are you a born-again believer? I want you to understand this is the first time this statement has been made in this way. Although it's not new in Judaism, they use the term born from above. In fact, this word can actually be translated, born from above. They likened stepping into Israel as having been born a second time, especially for a Gentile. Had a little problem seeing it that way for themselves. You cannot see the kingdom unless there's a complete and total changing of your nature. Now, we like to emphasize come to the altar and begin the change. But we fall down somewhere in the implementation stage that says your nature must actually change. The pledge to do it is not enough. The fact that you came, had a warm, fuzzy experience, and shed some tears is not enough. The fact that mom and dad 
are doing good. Not enough. If you are not completely changed in your nature, you will not see the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is saying. Who is he saying it to? The leader of leaders. The best among them. You ever heard it said that Jesus was just hard on the religious leadership because their hearts were hard? I've actually said that. This You find no instance, nothing in this account about Nicodemus that would lead you to believe his heart is hard. Not if you look at it honestly. If I walked up to Michelle and said, Michelle, I want you to hear this. And then I spit out a phrase that had never been known before. If you don't stand on your head, you're not going to go to the kingdom of God. Rather, it's not going to come to you. What do you mean, stand on my head? Does that indicate a hard heart or a lack of understanding? There's nothing hard about his heart. It is required of all men, not just the hard-hearted, not just the Jewish leadership, not the ruling council, not just those Pharisees. All men, because all men have the same thing inside them. That means Fred does, John does, Cody does. Every man does. No exclusions. Not for my friends, not for my family, not for anyone, not for me. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Say, oh, Eric, you know, what a stupid thing that was to say. I think it was an incredibly honest thing to say. Jesus, I know that there's something unique about you. Nobody could do the things that you're doing if you wasn't from God. You just said something that has blown me out of the water. He could feign pride. He could just say, you presume to teach me and walk off. But he doesn't. He asked the most honest question that he knows how. Are you saying this? Can't be, huh? You think that took some courage? I mean, after all, he's supposed to be the one with all the answers. Well, surely Jesus will admire his courage. Surely Jesus will look upon this question and say, Oh, Nicodemus, come here, man. Let me hug on you. Jesus knows what is in all men. All men. And listen to what he says. Actually, yeah, listen to what he says. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. It's funny, commentaries have been written on exactly what that means. And is baptism required or not required? What a moot point is baptism required? You know what's required for salvation? Obedience to everything that he says, period, bar none. Not necessarily performance. You're going to fall down in your performance. But if you fall down in your obedience, he is not your Lord. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Oh, well, thanks, Jesus. Now I definitely got it. I shouldn't be surprised. What about the wind? Is there anybody here that, that just suddenly, I mean immediately, that went, Oh, obviously, now I understand completely what born again is. You know, to those that have been given much, much is required. 
And had Nicodemus been given much? He'd been given as much as anybody in Israel to be a member of the Jewish ruling council. Ecclesiastes 11.5 contains a verse that Nicodemus would have had memorized since before he was 14 years old. You hear me? From 14 years old on, just like you might be able to quote John 3.16, he could quote the book of Ecclesiastes. And in what we now call the 11th chapter and 5th verse, hear this verse that Jesus is referencing. I hope you may not have a footnote there. Apparently, the man who put together our Bibles didn't think that the Jewish learning style was important enough to put the cross-reference. As you do not know the path of the wind, this is Ecclesiastes 11.5, as you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. When he said, hey, it's like the wind. It blows wherever it pleases and you don't understand. You know what is happening in Nicodemus' mind at that very moment? He realizes there's a reference to Ecclesiastes and this rabbi who he has just called good is saying, you can't begin to understand God. He'd been studying all of his life. He had the book memorized. He's coming saying, Jesus, you're a good teacher. Flattery. Not necessarily heartless flattery. Maybe sincere. And what did Jesus do to him? What a cutting, biting kind of statement. That didn't come off that way to you because you didn't memorize the book. You didn't spend your entire life vested in your knowledge of it. But this man had. He understood what it meant. So I'm sure Jesus will hug him after this. Give him a kiss on the cheek. Tell him it's all going to be all right, huh? The Word of God is a cutting tool. You want to know what the path of the wind is? By the way, wind and spirit. In Hebrew, wind is ruach. Spirit is also ruach. When God breathed, it was ruach. Moving air is ruach. Well, it must be different in Greek, right? No. It's pneumos or pneuma. It's a play on words. He's saying the spirit is just like the wind. You see, Billy Graham picked up on this as one of his more famous quotes. I've never seen the wind. I've seen its effects, but I've never seen the wind. So it is with God. Nicodemus is standing there listening to this, and he is belittled. You want to know the path to the cross? It starts with you being belittled. Boy, we don't like that, do we? We are proud. Tall, tough, strong Americans. Nobody tells us what to do. The only way to come to Jesus is to be smaller in your own eyes. Period. There's no exception. Not for Steve or Gary or Darren. Not one. Don't understand the path of the wind or the spirit? Don't understand how a new creation is knit together? Well, we're going to find out when the word penetrates your heart and begins to circumcise it by making there less of you leaving room for more of him. If when you read the word all it says to you is what a good person you are something's wrong with you. Your relationship with God is not right. I'm telling you that right now. If all you see is what a bad person you are your relationship with God is not right. The Holy Spirit will both correct you and encourage you as needed. And when you stand and look at me and refuse to admit to anybody in your life that the Holy Spirit is correcting you, when those words won't come out of your mouth, you're in such dangerous spiritual ground. And there are a few of you that all you see is I'm corrected, I'm beaten, I'm, I'm woe is me. That's not God either. 
When he found people that were broken in spirit, he lifted them up. And when he found people that thought they were all right in their own eyes, not necessarily arrogant, people just like us, he beat them down. This is why he hung out with whores, tax collectors, prostitutes. They were already broken. How can this be, Nicodemus asked? Look at Jesus' response. You are Israel's teacher. Do you understand the sarcasm in that? You were Israel's teacher. Go to your mechanic tomorrow. Tell him this is a spark plug. And he said, I'm sorry, spark plug? You're a mechanic? Maybe he just didn't hear you well. But you look right at him and say, you're a mechanic? Or maybe it's a diesel and it has no spark plugs. Who knows? This is an insult. So Jesus was insulting? Yes. And he will be insulting to you. The word has bitter herbs in it. He will never leave you that way. This is why he is a stumbling stone for those that trip on him. But if he falls on you, you're crushed completely with no hope. What a strange way to say that. He will cause you to stumble so that you can learn to walk right. But if you will not learn to walk right, he will fall on you so that you are crushed. I'm encouraging you to stumble on him today. I'm encouraging you to examine your own heart, to quit playing church, playing the good wife, playing the good husband. The kingdom needs each one of us to perform our function. But it's hard. I know how hard it can be to discipline a child in a crowded room. I've had a table of lesbians correct me because they thought I was mishandling myself. I know exactly what that is like and the pressure that you feel. God didn't ask you to do it because it was easy. He asked you to do it because it was the right thing to do. By the way, what if Jesus only did what was expedient or easy? Well, then he would be just like us and we would all be going to hell. I need to move on here. You are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know. Who's the we? I don't know. But it's certainly more than Jesus. Nicodemus came and said, we know that you're of God. Jesus said, we speak of what we know. Who's we? There's only two men standing here. And presumably it's the disciples. I don't know. It is the family of God, though. And guess who is not in it? Nicodemus. Now, that's not surprising to the American church, because, oh, they're Jews, they're not saved. Very surprising to Israel. We're adopted as sons. We are saved. We are the plan of salvation for the world. Again, horribly, horribly insulting. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Hey, Nicodemus, ruler of the people. What does name mean? I'm not telling you what I read in a book or memorized from an oral tradition. I stand with the Father and I'm telling you what I've personally experienced. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the man who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Oh, right. That's become such a pretty saying for us. Who knows where that's found? Huh? 
Numbers 21. Thank you, Brandon. You have become an excellent Bible student. Guess who had numbers memorized? It says, even as the son of Moses lifted up the snake, so the son of man will be lifted up. <laughs> this is great. Nicodemus is standing there just having been insulted, saying he must be born again. Been insulted, saying that he didn't understand the wind, so he couldn't understand the kingdom of God. Having been insulted, you're Israel's teacher. And now, guess what Jesus is saying to him in a not-so-roundabout way? You're snake-bitten and dead. He is quoting a time period in Israel's history where because of their impatience with God, they had turned to other things, and God caused venomous snakes to come in their midst and bite them. They were all being attacked and eaten. What is a snake the symbol of? Sin. And the only cure for them was to look at a righteous standard God had raised up to cure sin. So in a roundabout way that is not roundabout to them at all, Jesus is looking right at the teacher of Israel and saying, you are riddled with sin. Now, by the way, what did Pharisee mean? Separated ones. What was his highest goal in life? Study of the Torah. And what was he? Riddled with sin. There is only one way, one path of the spirit, one path of the wind. It is to take you through the identifying process of sin in your life so that it can be removed. And it is a lifelong process. If Israel were anything like the American church, they would have gone into the promised land, fought for a few minutes with Jericho, and said... We could never really win anyway. I mean, after all, we have to live in this body. But, praise God, grace. Saints, you are supposed to be in a bloody battle for your salvation. You're supposed to be working it out with fear and trembling. But we don't work to get saved. No, you work because you're saved. He credited you with the end result, provided that you are straining with all of your heart to do what He tells you to do. And you know what that doesn't involve? Hiding bitterness. Hiding anger. Hiding hurt feelings. All of those things must be rooted out. Every bit of it. The church will never be what it is called to be as long as we refuse to follow the path of the Spirit that circumcises our heart. Instead, we'll run from meeting to meeting looking for miracles. We'll run from revival to revival looking for a move of the Spirit. you know what the largest move of the Spirit is according to the book of John? that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness. And what was the third one? Judgment. You read the great revivals in our nation's history, you will find no champion preaching. won't find it. You find statements that are so shocking to our ears, you wonder how they put up with it. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Has anybody in here but me read that? Are you kidding me? You're dangling on a spider web over the pits of hell and about to fall in? If that was preached to them and they got saved, what would be preached to our generation? But we're just good Americans, right? He goes on to say, Nicodemus, the entire world is condemned. I didn't come here to condemn it. It's condemned because it loves darkness. I'm now a standard being introduced that if you believe what I'm telling you, how do you know when somebody believes what you're telling them? I had a man tell me, while I was putting Splenda in my drink. Eric, Splenda's going to ruin your liver. Eric, you don't know yet, but the FDA is studying this, and I'm an attorney, and there's cases before me, and this is going to kill you, man. Don't, I mean, it's horrible, and on and on and on. Uh-huh. 
stirring the tea. I'm drinking it while he's telling me, right? And he stopped, just flabbergasted. He said, do you understand what I'm telling you? Yes. Doesn't that beg the question, why are you drinking the tea? Doesn't it? If I understand what he's telling me and I'm still drinking it? So what is the unstated conclusion he has to come to? I don't believe you. Or, I don't care. For us, it's never so simple as I don't believe you or I don't care. It's always some mixture of the two. I don't want to believe you because I don't want to care about this. Just give me a good message about grace. I mean, this one time God did a great thing for me. Yeah. How long ago was that? Turn with me then to John 7. All of these snake-bitten comments, the path of the wind comments, were aimed at one thing, the circumcision of Nicodemus' heart. By showing Nicodemus where his unique sin was, it gave him a chance to respond to it. The difference between conviction and condemnation, according to the book of Corinthians, is one makes you want to be more like God, and the other makes you want to die. Condemnation leads to death. Conviction leads to life. If there are not areas in your life right now that you're kind of wrestling with, you think that this could be... Something's wrong. Your heart's calloused. Because, you know what? As unskilled as I may be, this ought to be enough. And if it's not, then you need to ask your question. What am I waiting for? You need to realize, not a preacher's tool to get you to an altar. I'm not going to promise you a rapture tomorrow. I'm not going to threaten you with a car wreck today. I'm just going to tell you. You are not fit to serve God if you will not serve Him now. And you're not guaranteed that He'll deal with you another time to get you to serve Him. He's not begging you to serve Him. He doesn't need you. He's the ultimate. You need Him. It's just in your pride and self-delusion you don't believe it. Or you don't care. You really going to let being mad at your parents keep you from God? You really going to let being mad at your spouse, mad at your kids, keep you from God's plan for your life? How sad. In John 7, we find something unique. We find signs of hope. Y'all in John 7? Yes, yes. I'm not. There's so many study notes in this Bible that aren't mine. I have to turn like nine pages to get there. I have no idea what they could be writing about. Apparently it's a deep subject, this book. I don't think I want to read all of this. Um, let's start in 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Hey, they want to kill him, by the way, because he's been telling them the truth. His own brothers, he said, the world, uh, it can accept you because you're of the world. It can't accept me because I don't do evil things. James was in that group. How would you like your brother to tell you that? Right? Anybody got a sibling? How well do you receive correction from a sibling? What if it's your younger sibling? 
You know who else was in that group? His mama. Mama Mary. Surely Mama Mary was just awesome, right? You know that the scripture records she thought Jesus was crazy at one point and set out to take control of him? You know what he did? He left her outside with the crowd. And he said, who is my mother, my brother, and my sisters? Those who do the will of God. Jesus is the righteous standard. If he would not be swayed by his own familial ties, tell me, disgruntled children, do you think he'll be swayed by yours? At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Since many in the crowd put their faith in him. Wow, where is this taking place? Israel. Apparently they're not all Christ killers, as historians have said. huh? They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Why are they mad? Because they've set themselves apart. They're studying the word. They've done everything they could to fight religious corruption. And guess what? God didn't choose to show up among their number as one of them. He didn't follow any man's group because he requires all men everywhere to change. No matter who you are. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time. Then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you cannot find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They will not go into the presence of God without the circumcision of their hearts. By the way, Jeremiah 4.4, 4, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, all of those are encouragements to Israel to circumcise their hearts so that God could show up and do something among them. It sounds like it's required to cut those nasty attachments off of your heart for God to move in your life. Don't run from healing service to healing service hoping to get healed without doing the work in your own heart first. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Doesn't that kind of show what was in their heart? They didn't like him, but they also didn't want him to go teach the Greeks, did they? Because they didn't like the Greeks. Go ahead and go on down to 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. Well, it's great they answered their own question, huh? But this mob that knows nothing of the law there is a curse on them Nicodemus who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number asked does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing they replied are you from Galilee too they're insulting him but what made him speak up the path of the spirit in your life is that he brings correction to you so you can begin to examine is my way in this area really the right way Am I really doing what is right here? I mean, everybody around me says, you're a ruler of the people, you're doing great. But do I have God's favor? A collision with Jesus that involves several insults have caused Nicodemus to re-examine his life. Now he's willing to charge his own ruling council with error rather than charge Jesus with error. Isn't this what happens in all of our lives or rather what should be happening? 
Could all, I tell you, the biggest problem I had in getting saved was could all of my family and all of these people be sitting out here really be wrong? Because to me, to be saved at that moment meant that I had to reject some of what I had been told. And what I had been told was confess it with your mouth, walk this aisle, and it's all great. Sat with a pastor not long before that who, you know, pat me on the back and told me good things about me. Could they all really be wrong? There's 900 people in this church. How many people were in the nation of Israel? Nobody had been trained more than them, and they were all deceived. But in Nicodemus' heart, the circumcision is occurring. He's beginning to separate his own pride from the Word of God. He's beginning to look at his life soberly. And so he's convicted sitting there. Guys, you're saying he's a lawbreaker and we're actually about to break the law in condemning him without hearing witnesses. What is the Holy Spirit showing you in your life, I wonder? Turn to Matthew 27. Actually, you know what? Write Matthew 27 down. 57 through 61. I'm going to read it to you. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for the body, Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of a rock. An amazing thing about rock, as hard as rock is, the Grand Canyon's made of rock. I wish Lindsay was here today. And yet wind and water over time carved out a path right through it, didn't it? In fact, you can go to Pernalis Falls or any other place in the world and you can see that even granite can be carved by the spirit and water, which is the way that a man is born again. Not one ruler on the council believed in Jesus at first, and now Joseph of Arimathea and we're going to find out Nicodemus both believed in Jesus. The circumcising word, the power of the Spirit, had begun to carve out in their hearts a place for Jesus. I know, I know, you've never thought of your heart as much like a tomb, have you? I want to tell you it's exactly like a tomb. It either has resurrection life in it, or it has death. There is no in-between. Men, all according to that first verse we read, have yuckiness inside of them. But if somebody will chisel away at that stone and carve out a place for Jesus, which requires the removal of you, then there is hope for life. Joseph of Arimathea laid him in his own tomb at his own expense. Great cost. But worse than that, he's now public. He's been outed. He's being identified with Jesus, which means he's going to be expelled from the council, beaten in synagogue. Why would he do such a thing? Because God had circumcised his heart. And he realized that though he thought he was righteous, and he was completely right, and everyone else was wrong, and not nearly as smart as him, and is not nearly as good as him, and on and on and on, he evidently had fallen on his face and said, God saved me. By the way, Ezekiel 36 26 through 29 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of 
stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all of your uncleanliness. (laughs) If I even said that to you, you might be upset. Because what does that mean? You're dirty. Well, I was. Now I'm born again. You're right. You're right. And you haven't sinned since then. Good for you. Would you teach me that? Our whole life has become about cutting away the darkness that light might break forth. How are you doing with that process? Luke 23, 50 through 54 doesn't just say that he was a member of the ruling council. It says he was earnestly waiting for the kingdom of God to appear. That meant he wasn't satisfied with the kingdom he was ruling. He wanted something better. How are you doing with that? You satisfied with your life right now? The kingdom you're ruling? Or do you need something better than that? Go ahead and turn to John 19. We're going to close with these two scriptures and move towards communion. 1938. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Secretly to that point. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and about 75 pounds. The cost for that is unbelievable. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea apparently had carved out places in their heart for the king of kings. It didn't come through being told how great they were. It came by the searing conviction of the Word of God. And it wasn't because they were particularly morally bankrupt people. It's because God knows what is in all men. And He goes about circumcising your heart to remove it. Last thing I want to read to you and suggest is a picture of what your heart should become and what this table represents. It's in John 20. starts in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Why go through such a description? There was a stone slab there that they had laid Jesus' body on. And when she looked into the tomb that represents all men's hearts, she saw something. Two angelic creatures, one at the head, one at the foot. This must have looked very much in her mind like the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. This is the place where blood was shed to cover up her sin and new life could begin. This was a sign of the covenant that something innocent had to be cut that we might find a better way. Every time we take this table that we're going to take here in a few minutes, we're proclaiming that we participated in that process and are continuing to participate in that process. Paul goes so far as to warn believers, don't do this in an unworthy manner. You can end up dead. 
said, but search your hearts. Search your hearts. What needs to be circumcised so that you can be pleasing to God in the way that He's designed you to be? You find out you won't cut away anything that you needed. All those things you hoped would protect you. All the things that you thought would fuel you, staying mad at Him. They're really holding you back. Because your heart is not the picture of the mercy seat that Nicodemus, that Joseph of Arimathea, that Mary all experienced and became themselves. I bet for Nicodemus' whole life long, every time he met somebody, they could tell his heart had been thoroughly changed by the king. What is people's first impression of us? Saints, we're called. We're called to be heavenly. Our hearts should speak a message. I'm covered in mercy. I've been cut to the bone by the word of God. And I've been given a new start. Not 20 years ago when I got born again, today when I woke up. And I'll need it again tomorrow. Not an excuse to sin, an excuse to be circumcised in your heart daily. Now stand your feet. Let us worship our King. As we begin to worship, ask Him to cut your heart. Ask Him to show you what should change. And if you think it's enough to leave it between you and the Father, I want to warn you. It's with our mouths that we make confession to salvation. The Lord knows I've forgiven Him. It's between me and Him. Really. Perhaps we should consider that the Word tells us to confess our sins one to another so that we can be forgiven. Do you think that that excludes you? Maybe there's more squealer in you than there should be. My job's easy. I can get to you all at once. Yours might take all week to do. But I know this. When I was born again, I set out to find every person in the city that I lived in that had ever known me and tell them what happened in my life and most importantly, to tell him I was sorry. That's the starting line for Christianity. You may have been running 10 years and never started where you should. We're going to worship. A few songs in, whatever the Lord does, we'll open up this table. You come get the pieces whenever you like, but we'll take it together. And if you don't have time for this, that's okay. You all got schedules, I know. Those of us that want it bad enough, we'll wait. We'll do it. And if not, it's not a commentary on you. It just means today when you're dead. Want to worship? Yeah. I ask the Lord every week to give me a message you'll like. I don't know if he does or not. But I know it's getting me right with him. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you. We thank you because your word does cut. My razors get dull, but your word doesn't. My lawnmower gets dull, but your word doesn't. After 16 years, Lord, I still see so many areas that you are trying to cut out, and I have not let you. Mighty God, we pray that your surgery would happen on my heart and theirs. That this might be a time of restoration with each other and with you. Mighty, mighty God.
we want to participate in your covenant. As we worship you, Lord, we're asking. Actually, saints, say it. Lord God, Lord God let your hand be upon me. Let your hand be upon me. Let your glory impress me. Let your glory impress me. To do your will. To do your will. Lord, I want no rest. Lord, I want no rest. And I want no peace of mind. I want no peace of mind. Until I am right with you. Now, if you messed up and prayed that with me, I want you to know he will honor it. Mighty God, we commit to you as we worship.